News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Things seem to have calmed down at airports now in Canada. That's a very good thing, considering how chaotic the last few weeks were. And actually, you've still got people out there who are trying to find their luggage, right? Still thousands of pieces of luggage, not just at YVR, but at airports right across the country as people try to sort out what happened the last few weeks. The question now, though, is where is the accountability? Where are the changes or improvements? Will the federal government actually do anything? Joining us now to talk about this is Duncan D, a former COO of Air Canada, an expert in public transportation and policy. Duncan, thank you for being back with us. Being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So when you see what happened over the last you know, few weeks, do you think it was preventable? Look, I don't think the um, largest issues in terms of the weather and the cancellations was preventable simply because as folks at the YVR saw, uh, things were were just so difficult in terms not just of the forecast, but the rate at which the snow was falling that made it very difficult to keep the taxiways and runways clear. But, you know, there are certain things that could have helped the recovery how the airlines, how the airports recovered in the days following the weather events is really where the focus should be in terms of how uh, travelers' uh, experience would be in the future if we did a better job of managing um, how we recover from these events. We can't prevent the weather, but we can surely change the way we handle how we recover from them. Oh, and how should we be changing things then? I think that the um, uh, the most important thing is for the government to do a better job anticipating um, how things are going and to identify potential bottlenecks. We've had now um, experiences throughout the summer peak, now um, the Christmas peak, where uh, the government really was caught flat-footed. Um, they you know, appeared to be more like spectators than actual uh, players in the game. Um, and so in the case of the Sunwing uh, debacle, it was very, very clear at the onset, you know, in the day following the weather event, that this would be a disastrous outcome. It was certainly what many people in the industry saw as a problem. And, um, you know, it seems like all we got from the federal government was a tweet saying they're concerned and they're looking into it. So, you know, these are things which have to be looked at much more closely. If you take a look at the parallels between Canada and the U.S. and the way the U.S. government uh, reacted to the debacle uh, over the Christmas holidays with Southwest Airlines, uh, which many folks in, in B.C. would be familiar with, or uh, how the Canadian government hun- handled South Sunwing, Sunwing Airlines, you're talking about a, a comparison that uh, is really night and day, that the two um, reactions were completely different. One, the U.S. reaction was much more active. The Secretary of Transportation out there um, ensuring that travelers uh, were handled better by Southwest Airlines. Whereas in Canada, as I said earlier, you know, the transport minister is simply just tweeting that he was hoping things would work out. Right. So that's the thing that we we always get frustrated by, Duncan, isn't it? Is that there doesn't ever seem to be any repercussions or consequences when things go wrong. 
Right. And, you know, uh, now we're, there's news that the uh, Parliamentary Transport Committee is inviting um, Sunwing executives and Via Rail executives to explain themselves. And the reaction from the minister at that time was, you know, it's a very important meeting and I'll, I'm looking forward to that discussion as if he's just a spectator, you know, watching from the outside, looking in um, and not really quite sure what uh, to do. He has powers to compel um, carriers to take their responsibility seriously. The Canada Transportation, Canada Transportation Agency, for example, can levy fines of up to $25,000 per incident if an airline fails to comply with their own responsibilities to, to travelers. But it just seems like, you know, we're in a situation where the government looks at this and and plays the, the role of an observer as somebody who just looks at something, stares at it and pretends it's not a problem that they can help solve. What do you think, in your opinion, what would work to send a message to the industry that, that what you did this time is not acceptable, that can't happen again? Look, I think what Sunwing did was outrageous. Uh, the fact that uh, folks in Saskatchewan now um, are seeing cancellations into February um, as a result of the debacle we saw from Sunwing this uh, uh, last couple of weeks is proof that this was not never about the weather. Um, you know, and uh, so there has to be repercussions. I think that um, the federal government needs to ensure that in the future, when Sunwing puts in an application to uh, run these uh, flights um, on the basis of bringing in foreign uh, pilots, uh, that they have the um, wherewithal to actually operate them. You know, you can't just uh, sell tickets to flights that may not operate. And then on the eve of those flights, telling travelers, well, you're just out of luck, you're have, you'll have to make your own arrangements because we don't have the pilots or the aircraft to, 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 to operate these flights. What Sunwing did really is a huge black eye, not just on Sunwing, but on the entire airline industry. And unless the federal government acts and acts um, quickly, then you know the, the, the reputational damage done to the industry is severe. I certainly don't know anyone who would want to uh, trust their travel dollars by booking a vacation on Sunwing going forward. Well, I think all airlines, don't you think, have suffered a bit from this? I think all airlines for sure have suffered um, uh, from what happened this uh, the last few weeks. But as we saw in the U.S. and as we see in Canada, some airlines have handled the recoveries much better than the others. Look, um, are bags going to get lost in the middle of uh, a weather event like the 23rd of December where you had all three largest hubs hit by weather? Absolutely. Bags will for sure get lost because airlines are not able to operate flights on time. You also have the added problem where the baggage belt at Pearson Airport actually broke down on that day. So, you know, those things will happen. The recoveries are really where the focus should be on. And some airlines have done a better job of recovering than others. There will still be frustrated travelers for sure because, you know, as a result of what happened on days like the 23rd in Vancouver, you also had the lead up to the 23rd, um, the weekend before where you had uh, weather as well. You know, those things are, un, uh, you know, are, are not things that the, the airline industry can mitigate 
uh, to any great degree. What they can do, however, is ensure that they've got the resources in place so that the bags that are lost are delivered much more quickly, that travelers who have disrupted flights get refunds quickly if they can't be reaccommodated, or that they've got the ability to reaccommodate them in a way which is acceptable to the traveler. Do you see any sign, though, Duncan, any sign that what you're talking about is going to happen, that, that the federal government took this seriously, that something is going to change? Simi, you know, this is something that I've been um, banging on now since 2016. Um, I was part of the Canada Transportation Act review panel at the invitation of the federal government so that structural changes could be made to the transportation system. Many of our recommendations were luckily implemented, but a lot of the key recommendations are gathering dust. And so the government really has a choice to either look at the structural problems that are in the airline, uh, air transportation system and address them, or you know they can continue to watch as spectators or as observers as travelers are inconvenienced going forward. What happened, for example, with Sunwing, I believe, was entirely preventable. Airlines should not be allowed to sell flights that they have no hope of operating. And you know what we saw there was clear. You know that's something that should should have been addressed well before this. And you know mm-hmm. now we're stuck in a situation where people are just uh, holding the bag, uh, or not the bag because they can't find it. Right, and the bag never actually showed up. Duncan, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Happy New Year. That is Duncan D., former Air Canada COO and expert in public transportation and policy, talking about the holiday travel chaos that we saw. And it really does seem at this point that there aren't going to be any repercussions or consequences as a result of this. Now, I don't know about you, but my email inbox has certainly seen a few emails in the last week or so about flight sales, right? Seat sales from airlines, both Air Canada and WestJet. And I remember looking at it thinking, are you kidding me? Just after the last few weeks, you couldn't, you know, you were ready to abandon people at the airport for, you know, days at a time. And you're already selling seat sales into the spring. And that's the thing. They want us to forget about it, right? Dangle a nice low airfare and some people will probably grab it and go for it. Like, are you ready to travel again with all the chaos that we saw over the last few weeks. Weigh in with your thoughts on this. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. In the news this morning, you've heard the story that Vancouver Fire Rescue Services says they're preparing to take legal action against one single-room occupancy hotel in particular. They say that that hotel was involved in 504 emergency calls in 2022. Just one building and that many calls. So what they're saying is that a total of 300 calls connected to that SRO were related to smoking, cigarettes, or some kind of smoking going on there. By the way, the Vancouver Fire Rescue Services has deleted that that tweet now, but this is what they had put out there originally. So what is going on? Well, that building is run by the Atira Women's Resource Society, and Janice Abbott, the CEO, joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Has this been a building with known problems like this? Like, have you known this is an issue? Uh, It's actually not unique to this building. We have this issue, um, and as do other operators across all of the SROs. And why is that? We're familiar with this. Yeah, why is that? Um, um, There's a number of issues. Um, In in buildings like the Hotel Canada, for example, they have, um, which were renovated by the province in 
2013 to 2017 have ultra-sensitive smoke alarms in them, and they have what's called a stage one system. Um, And what that means is in the buildings that you and I live in with a stage two system, you have like 60 seconds if you set off your smoke alarm with burning toast or whatever to kind of brush away the smoke before um, the monitoring monitoring company is notified. In the SROs, due to building code, there's what's called a stage one system. So every minor incident is immediately um, sent to the monitoring company and requires a response from the Vancouver Fire Department. Uh, And keep in mind that these buildings are, people typically are living in eight by, or sorry, 10 by 12 rooms. They have restrictors on their windows that prevent them from opening for more than six inches. So they're more prone um, to have a fire alarm uh, activate. Right. Are there ways in which, you know, the the people who run that hotel have tried to approach this? Like, have any mitigation attempts been made? Well, we do have, uh, they are non-smoking buildings, so when people come in, they find a, a residential tenancy agreement that where they agree they won't smoke in the building. Um, but our only real tool after that is is, is breaching an eviction. And, and so evicting someone for smoking um, or, or triggering a fire alarm through smoke mean, means they end up on the street. So there isn't really a viable alternative. So what is the solution here for something like for this problem? Well, I'm not a fire expert, um, so I don't know what the solution is. And, and I'm, I'm uh, not being an expert, I'm, I'm loath to kind of speculate. But I can say that we've been working with the City of Vancouver and the Fire Department for probably the last three years to try and find a solution for this. Because it's frustrating for us, too. You can appreciate that we also have to respond um, every time a, a, a fire alarm is triggered. So what did you think then when Vancouver Fire Rescue Services put that out? Um, we were a little surprised because it's not, like I say, it's something we've been working on with the fire department for probably two or three years. Um, it, it, there are building code issues. So the city of Vancouver um, building code requires a stage one um, system in SROs, which, and I understand why. Um, they're old buildings and they're wood construction typically. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm not sure that, um, that the tweet was helpful. Have you received any notification of any type of legal action? No, no. Okay, so has this opened up any kind of discussion with them then? Like, will this result, do you think, in, in perhaps um, moving these nego- like something along here? Well, like I say, we've been having this conversation with the city and the fire department for probably about three years. Um, I think, I do actually think the tweet and the attention that's being paid to it may help move that conversation along and may trigger a, uh, a more kind of robust um, thought process in terms of what, what, we can, what we can all do to resolve this. Is it nece- do you need to put that second stage in then, I guess? Is that with, like a financial investment to make that happen? Um, well, we have been pushing for a second stage. Again, I do understand the concerns given the nature of the build or the construction of the buildings and, and who they house. So it's not as, I don't think, it, I don't think there's a simple solution, um, but there has to be a solution. Okay. And so you said this is a problem for years. Other buildings have this problem as well? Absolutely. This is not not unique. I mean, the hotel, the hotel Canada. One of the reasons the number is so high is because it's a big building. There's 150 rooms there, um, and probably 180 to 190 tenants. So it's it, it's a bit of a numbers game at that building. But we have we have, and as do other operators, have ongoing issues in in all of the supportive housing buildings. Right. How extensive is the system then, Janice? Like, are you able to identify if the alarm goes off which room that that alarm went off in? 
Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah, um, but again, is eviction the is eviction the the tool? Like we we do education. We ask people not to smoke. Um, we do send breach letters. Breach letters are also um, problematic in that you know we're we're in theory providing tenants with support, and if you're constantly breaching them for this, that, and the other thing, it it um, it damages your right. relationships with people. So so it, it's it's a complicated issue. I'm just wondering, though, if you installed a second stage system in there and you could identify the room, it's you wouldn't have to go running around trying to figure out where that false alarm well, is. Typically, we know where the false alarm is, and so does the monitoring system. So you can. Um, but but like I say, the minute it sets off, it, it um, the monitoring company is notified and Vancouver Fire Department is notified and they are required by law to respond. So it, it sets off, it triggers a series of events that are, where we're all required to do something. Um, whereas, like I say, in buildings, in most buildings, most residential buildings, you have this two-stage, two-stage system where you have like 60 seconds to try and, right. you know, we've all been up there with our magazine, um, brushing the smoke away, right? right? Like, And that doesn't exist in the SROs. And there's good reason for that, I understand. Right. Um, but... but um, but it does create this problem. And when the only sort of tool that you have is eviction, um, that's not a solution either. So Janice, what would you like people to know about this? Because clearly, you know, people are going to hear this in the news and they're going to read the headlines on this. But what would you like people to know about this? Um, again, that it's it's complicated. And I think that um, I, I absolutely understand why the fire department is frustrated um, I want people to know that, you know, we're frustrated too. Like it takes up a lot of time for everybody um, and that we have to find a solution that's not um, sort of pointing fingers at each other and that, and that recognizes the complexity of these buildings and the complexity of the people who live in them. Well, I appreciate your time this morning to explain it to us. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Shakeout BC tells us that BC is the most seismically active area of Canada. And they would know, right? They're an emergency preparedness organization. Did you know that Canada's second largest earthquake last year actually occurred in BC? It was a 5.3 magnitude quake just off the northwest coast of Vancouver Island. The largest, you're wondering, of course, uh, 5.5 in the Yukon, just across the border from BC and Alaska. So it's all in this area, though, right? And that is just a couple of the roughly 2,500 earthquakes that happened in our province last year. So what are we learning from them? Well, John Cassidy is with us now, a senior research scientist with Natural Resources Canada. John, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Simi. Nice to be here. Are we getting better at learning from these earthquakes? Uh, we, we are. Um, we have a lot more data. We have a lot more instruments, size, uh, seismometers on the ground. We have better data. And, um, and we're able to learn not only from the larger earthquakes and Big earthquakes like you know the 5.3 that you mentioned, or, or the larger ones that we've had um, in the past, are, are recorded all around the world. But uh, even the small earthquakes, the little magnitude ones and twos that that happen every single day, uh, we're able to use those recordings to better understand, get better locations, understand where the earthquakes occur and what what the source of the energy is, um, and for example, looking for faults uh, beneath the surface that we may not see. So, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of um, studies underway, and a lot of uh, really important work that can be done 
even with the tiniest of earthquakes. Okay, and what does that tell us about BC and our relationship with earthquakes? Yeah, well, we we are the most seismically active uh, area in Canada, and this is where the active plate tectonics occurs, is right off of our coast. So we have these we live on the North American plate, but just offshore is the Pacific plate, which covers most of the Pacific Ocean. And then between the Pacific and North American plates in the south, we have a series of very young ocean plates that are being created just offshore um, at a series of undersea volcanoes. And those plates are being pushed towards us and then sinking beneath uh, Vancouver Island and the lower mainland. So Sorry, it's a very a very active tectonic setting where plates slide past one another, move apart, and collide. So it's all of the types of plate motions that can occur do occur just off of our coast, and and these plates are moving at about the same speed that your fingernails grow. So you know it's not very fast, but over a lifetime it represents four, five, or six meters of movement that um, would happen along these plate boundaries. Now, are we learning so much that we're getting to a point where we can we can pinpoint where this activity is or perhaps getting to a point where we can predict where the activity might be? Yeah, we, we, we can't, um, we can't, certainly can't predict earthquakes, uh, but the, the work that we're doing is, is sort of twofold. One is, um, is to improve our understanding of where earthquakes will occur in the future and how large and how often, and, and how often is a really important part of this, because if an earthquake only happens once every 10,000 years, um, the chances of it happening in any given year are very tiny. Um, but if it's um, you know shaking that we would expect every 50 years or every 100 years, that's really important. So, um, so we're looking at how often we can expect the ground to shake and what type of shaking and that information goes into our national building codes, into our bridge codes, used by engineers on a, on a regular basis. Um, so our, our building codes are improved every five years, including through seismic. And um, that's, that's really probably the most important contribution that we make by studying these small earthquakes is directly towards uh, earthquake engineering. So information that engineers need when they're designing buildings or structures. Right. This and is all in preparation for the big one, though, right, John? Absolutely, yeah. So what we're looking for is trying to minimize the impact of those earthquakes that we know will happen in the future. Um, the really big ones don't happen so often, but they have happened here in the past. They will happen again in the future. And so we want to make sure that we're as prepared as possible for for those events um, through building codes, through awareness, and through preparedness. Is there any kind of pattern to these earthquakes? Like, can we see a buildup before a big one? Can we, is there anything that is recognizable in that pattern? Yeah, there, there's nothing really obvious at this point. They're um, looking at big earthquakes around the world. There have been, in some cases, precursors, smaller earthquakes that happen beforehand, um, but they don't happen all the time. They're, they only seems to be about 5% of the time that, that you see a small earthquake before one of these larger events. And so um, at this point, there, there's really no, um, you know, no obvious way to reliably predict earthquakes. 
But we do have underway an earthquake early warning system. So once an earthquake has occurred, it does take time for those waves, those seismic waves to travel. And uh, the early warning system that's being developed um, across Canada will provide uh, some warning seconds right. to perhaps tens of seconds of warning before strong shaking arrives. So that does give the opportunity to um, stop trains, to stop cars from going into tunnels or onto bridges, uh, to open garage doors at fire halls, um, for surgeons to put down scalpels before strong shaking arrives. So there are a lot of um, you know a lot of opportunities there right. with this new early warning system. Well, so fascinating, John. Thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for the um, the opportunity. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of new rules coming into force at this time of year, right? Beginning of the year, that always seems to be the case. And definitely some that apply to our real estate market. So BC has become the first province that will require a three-day cooling-off period for buyers after you have signed an agreement to purchase a home. It's called a home buyer protection period. And what they're hoping is that this would give you more time to maybe figure out some financing if there's a hiccup or something or get that home inspection done that you felt pressured to go without when you were making that offer. These are all details that the provincial government says were neglected when the housing market was really behaving at its most crazy. So they say that the extra days will also give buyers more time to consider if the purchase is even right for them, or maybe they felt pressured into doing it. So will this help things out? And by the way, weigh in on this, simi at cknw.com. But joining us now is Sir Somerville, Professor of Real Estate Finance at UBC's Sauter School of Business. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. But it feels like, sir, like what haven't we tried at this point to try to fix things in the market um, building a lot more housing. Ah, there it is. <laughs> but so, I, so I, you know, this isn't something that I think is about trying to make housing affordable. This is sort of a, a measure that was geared or intended to remove the pressure and anxiety and to help keep buyers out of being in circumstances where they've got they get really really unwelcome surprises because they haven't had time to do due diligence. Right. That's that pressure that people feel, right? Like you go to an open house and there's like 30 other people there and they're all going to be making an offer. That's right. And so and then you're told, well, if you make an offer subject to any kind of conditions, you won't be able to, to purchase the home and you haven't been able to line up a home inspector. So you you make the offer without an inspection. And I, I think from my perspective, the most important issue to address is exactly that, making sure that no one signs or, or no one buys a house without having an appropriate time to get it inspected and to know at least some of the things that are involved with the condition of the house. Okay, so what do you think about this rule then? Is this helpful? So it, it's one of these things that was it was a really helpful rule a year ago um, and less helpful now in that now we're in a much weaker market and so you're not getting 30 people making offers on houses. And so the ability to get an inspection done or make an offer subject to is a lot easier now and there's not as much pressure on it. And in fact, now it's kind of swung the other way where now the, the concern here uh, might be a buyer trying to, to game the seller by making an offer and then in the cooling off period saying, oh, you know what, um, this has to come down by, you know, $50,000 or something like that. And now the seller might have pressure because in a weak market, they're not sure 
how long it would take to find another buyer. Right. So it, yeah. And so. this is a weak market right now. Would you would you classify it as that? Well, that's what the that's what the people who spend their time measuring this stuff say it is. So I believe them. And so, do you think then is this going to be helpful for people? Will this give people peace of mind? I wonder what does this mean for the seller. So you know, it creates more anxiety for the seller in a market where you're you're in seller anxiety. My, my general feeling, though, is the buyer needs a bit more protection because the buyer is fundamentally the one going in who doesn't really know the home as well. The seller does know the home, and so I I think that in in the context of who's facing the most most uncertainty and need some help, I think giving the buyer a little more space is more important. You probably wouldn't have to put this policy in right now just because of conditions, but if you're going to have one policy for up and down markets, then this feels like an appropriate policy. You know, we don't tend to have policies that are switching on and off every time the market goes through a cycle. That's true. Okay, so this just allows people to maybe take a breather. Maybe people feel like I got in over my head, like what was I doing? Yeah, I like. I, I think that should be less of the issue right now because of the way conditions are. Uh, you know, my feeling is that that should never have been the real motivation. You know, protect prevent people from from buying something they shouldn't have bought just because they shouldn't have bought. And I think it's more allowing them to be able to do the appropriate due diligence. You know, in that hot market, you couldn't really. It was very hard to schedule a home inspection when the open house is on Thursday. You know, bids are on Sunday. And as well, if you were going to have to bid on 10 houses to actually get one, doing 10 home inspections gets very, very expensive. So, you know, it's really, I think, a policy that really suits hot market conditions, particularly the type of of conditions we had here with these sort of crazy cattle call bidding situations. Oh, yeah, I know. And I feel like those will come around again at some point. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Sir, while I have you here, let me also ask you about this homeowner's grant situation. So the threshold being raised to what little over $2.1 million. What did you think of that? You know, I mean, the homeowner's grant is one of those things that's probably not good policy, but it's good politics. Um, you know, uh, if, if you think about who you, who, if you think about who you need to bail out in the system, you need, there, there are two people that need help. There are people on fixed incomes who might be in a, in a unit where the cost of the, of the property tax is very high relative to their, their, their fixed income. And then, you know, poor renters. And so, you know, giving grants to, to homeowners, you know, because their house is below a certain price probably not the best way to allocate funds in the market, but I understand why it's, you know, politically pretty palatable. Yeah, that's one of those things if I feel like it's gotten to the point where politicians can't touch it. Exactly. You know, like that bad idea, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't be the one canceling it. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think is going to be the big factor here for the housing market this year? Do you think it will still be real um, those interest rates? Interest rates in the economy. So, you know, it's both if interest rates stay high and if there's a slowdown in the economy. You know, both those things would impact housing markets. And, you know, one of the concerns that you have is that the appropriate policy for fighting inflation, high interest rates, um, really puts a drag on new construction. And so we're kind of in a, in a bind that the short-term problem with inflation works against long-term solutions to, to housing by, by reducing the incentive and limiting uh, new construction because the cost of financing is so high. All right. Well, sir, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. Yeah, I wish I had more good news. <laughs> one day. One day we're going to talk to you day, and I there will be good news. You. Yes. <laughs>
I look forward. To, I look forward to it. Thank you. Yeah, but economists are not good news people. So, well, you chose that line of work. What are we supposed to do, right? Yeah, well, I'm good at it. <laughs> you, you are. Thanks for your time this morning. Bye now. That is Sir Somerville, professor of real estate finance at UBC Sauter School of Business, talking about the three day home buyer protection period now. So, when the market does, if it does get crazy again, and you see that pressure and you know lineups to place a bid on a house, that kind of thing, this is designed to allow people to take a breath, essentially. Your offer gets accepted. Now you've got three days uh, to change your mind, maybe get better financing, get a home inspection. Uh, do you think this is a good idea? Do you like it? You let me know. Send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning, the latest update tells us that Damar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills player, is still in critical condition in hospital. Uh, they are hoping that he will continue progressing. Uh, he's about 50% breathing on his own, they said right now, or, or needing the ventilator. So things are slowly getting better, they hope. But that is the latest update, remains in critical condition in hospital. And the teams, the NFL, really still dealing with this whole situation after Damar Hamlin's a collapse on the field, suffering cardiac arrest on, on Monday night. It's really, I think, reignited this whole discussion about safety and safety protocols in football. And does the game overall need to have a higher level of awareness of this? More risks to players being minimized? Let's talk about this now with Julio Caravetta, who's, of course, BC Lions play-by-play analyst and former BC Lions quarterback. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Boy, you, you know, I think this is difficult a week for anybody who has played football. Like, what went through your mind when you saw what was happening? Well, yeah, it was uh, pretty traumatic. Uh, I won't lie. Um, I think uh, anytime you see a situation like that play out in front of what eighty thousand people on uh, in a you know, I mean, at a live event, and especially to all the people watching, I think one of the things that always resonates when you see something like that. It reminded me. It brought me right back to the. You know the um, the European Cup game uh, where the Denmark uh, player Christian right. Eriksen collapsed on the field in front of you know in front of a stadium of people and uh, you know just the reaction of the players too right like you know those some of the players couldn't contain themselves emotionally it's it's something very very difficult to to you know to see live and and happening in front of your eyes so that's something that really kind of stuck out to me but you know when you talk about the the safety of the players you know the one thing that you have to think to yourself too that you know they had they had people in place um the medical professionals that were there in place that you know basically saved his life at that point giving them you know out of you know giving them cpr right away getting an aed on him right away um getting his heart bait back again and and getting him off the field as quickly as possible so um in in that regard um i thought the you know the nfl you know did a tremendous job of of getting the right people out onto the field to, to help them right away right but in other regards do you think there are areas that need to be worked on here well you know what to me that the thing about you know especially you know contact sports like football you know i mean the, the thing we're finding out you know and, and it's i think it's probably like this in a lot a lot of sports is that the athletes are just getting you know bigger stronger and faster and those impacts are, are, you know, they're, they're violent. Um, it's, it's a, it's a violent sport, right? So I think, unfortunately, when things like this happen, the league has to, you know, take a look at what's happening and, and can they do things better? Can they tweak rules to, to make sure that player safety is, is first and foremost. Now, when you hear the circumstances around his injury, 
and how it happened, you know, I mean, you have to think, you know, what are the, what are the chances, right? Like they were saying that direct impact on his heart at that particular moment, right? When the heart was switched, you know what I mean? That all those things that had to yeah. happen at that very split instance, you know what I mean? That's, you know I mean, the odds on that are, are, you know, I'm, I'm sure very, very high, but I'm sure the league will use this opportunity to, like you say, you know, they ultimately, they want to make the game as safe as possible. And I, I think, unfortunately, situations like this force you to look at it and hopefully they can find a way maybe to, to you know, to tweak some rules that, you know, don't allow a player. It's one of the things that they've really taken out of the game is your ability to lower your helmet into a, per, into a you know, into an opponent. And usually it's the defenders who are, you know, who are the ones that are leading with their head and they're really trying to take that part of the game out of it. Um, but it is something that offensive players do as well to try to brace themselves for impact as they, they, they go into a collision. So, you know, it is something maybe that they can take a look at and, and, and make that call more so that players know that any time that you're leading with your head, with your eyes down or the crown of your head down, um, you're going to get penalized for it. And until the players start to respond to that, um, you're going to still see a lot of those, you know, high high speed con- or, um, impacts. You know, when you were playing, then was there a lot of talk about safety? Were there awareness of safety? Because yeah. I feel like today, <laughs> if you play, it's probably a different situation. Oh yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, it, it is an entirely different game. It's evolved, right? Uh, um, as it should. Uh, but I think that you know the the way the teams practice now, um, they have really, really limited the amount of contact that happens. Um, you know, they're all constantly tweaking, you know, parts of the game. Like, you know, you look at kickoffs now where they've moved the ball further upfield so that the kickers can kick it out of the end zone. So they're eliminating returns. So there's less contact. And so they have come a long, long way in, in respect to, you know, not only the rules in the game, but the way that they treat the players off the field and how they practice and how they get ready for games. So, they are continuing to evolve, and and hopefully they continue to do that. Right? Um, it's a it, it's one of those things, Simi. That football again is it's a violent sport, right? And and anytime you 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 involve yourself in a game like that, there's going to be injuries, and you know. And now we know so much more about uh, the brain injuries and CTE and all those kinds of things that um, it is. Just, it's just going to be a part of the game. That um, mm-hmm. as much as you try to to protect the players, it's still it's still happening at a high speed and, and, and things can happen out there. Are players aware of that? Do you think today is there, do, do you, do they care more about their safety as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no. I think the players are very well aware of it. And there's always, there's, you know, they're constantly, I think, um, you know, making suggestions and, and trying to, you know, bring things to the, to the forefront with the league. I know in the CFL to, to try to make the game safer. But I also think that, you know, when you look in regards to um, the NFL, right, and, and these sports that, you know, where you're, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars in, in salary, that a lot of the guys, they sign up knowing exactly what they're in for, but they're willing to, you know, sacrifice that for, for what the game will bring them, right? You, you think to yourself, right, uh, I think you put yourself in, all, in their position. You know, I think, you know, for me, I would have gladly signed that contract and, you know, made millions of dollars and, uh, been able to provide a life for my family that uh, you know you otherwise wouldn't have been able to, um, and and in thinking to yourself, okay, if something happens to me, it happens to me, but at least you know I'm going to be taken care of. Yeah. So that's 
that's those are the things that run through a young kid's head, right? When they have a dream about playing a professional sport, you get you get there, and I think the last thing you think is is of something like this happening to you. And obviously, this has had a like the the reaction to this. I think has really been astonishing, hasn't it? Like people who don't yeah. even watch football care about Demar Hamlin and want him to get oh better. Oh gosh, absolutely. What was the you know, I think he has a, a charitable foundation oh, that he was, six million he was trying at. to raise, what, $25,000? And that, I, as of last night, I think I heard it's up over $5 million. Yeah. Every time yeah, I look at that, it's getting higher and higher. And I think, you know, there, yeah. there's good people out there. They want, they want to see him yeah. do well. Yeah, and, and every indication is that he's a fantastic kid, right, who, you know, puts his family and his community first and, and does a lot of stuff for kids. And, um I think his story is really resonating, and, and like you say, you're, you're getting the response you are. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it this morning. We appreciate that. I, I really appreciate being on. Thanks very much, Sumi. Anytime. That's Julia Caravetta, BC Lions play-by-play analyst and, of course, former BC Lions quarterback, talking about the impact of the DeMar Hamlin story. He remains in critical condition in hospital, and I think this has had such a huge Huge impact on everybody, even the Buffalo Sabres last night wearing on their uniforms uh, a tribute to DeMar Hamlin. Uh, It's just across sports and really people who don't even pay attention to sports, I think, have paid attention to this story. And yes, his foundation raising money for kids in the city that he grew up in is now up at about $6 million, which is just phenomenal. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some of the upheaval in the retail landscape. Certainly during the pandemic and, you know, in now this year after it, we've seen a lot of changes. Maybe that store that you used to love going to or that coffee shop or that restaurant is no longer there. Maybe there's an empty storefront. And those changes continue as we head into, you know, uh, 2023 here because Starbucks has very suddenly closed a prime location right across from the steam clock in the Gastown neighborhood here in Vancouver. This was a store on Water Street. It was there for almost 30 years, closed its doors permanently uh, on New Year's Eve. Now, Starbucks Canada is saying, oh, they made careful consideration before they did this. But what is going on here? Like Starbucks is having a real remaking kind of of their priorities when it comes to which doors they open. But is this just a sign of the times? Are we going to see more of this kind of consolidation of retailers too, especially with the rents are the way they are. Well, joining us now to talk about this is the person we turn to for our retail questions, David Ian Gray, marketing expert with Dig360. Good morning, David. Good morning, Simi. Happy 2023. Yes, happy 2023 to you too. Is this something that we just have to get used to is seeing some more of these empty storefronts? Because boy, there seems to be a lot of them out there. Well, it, what's what's hard to pinpoint is it's uh, it's not a universal situation. Um, we do know that through the pandemic, downtown cores uh, in Canada and elsewhere were really hard hit because all the office workers, you know, were, were not in anymore. And we also lost a lot of tourism through 2020 and 2021. Uh, but I could tell you that there's areas of the burbs that thrived, you know, so it's not that all stores are gone. There's a lot of demand for physical storefronts. Um, but Gastown is a very unique situation that uh, I feel, uh, you know, is an exceptional case. It, it was this vibrant kind of gentrifying area. I used to live near that Starbucks uh, about a decade ago. And uh, innovative, risk-taking entrepreneurs were kind of going in there. And it's going through that transition where uh, they built a brand of a, of a neighborhood 
and suddenly the you know bigger deeper pockets have eyes on spaces and landlords are looking for higher rents and so a lot of them have moved off say to chinatown and i'm not talking about 2022 right now i'm sort of saying 2018 2019 there's a shift happening uh but I, I i starbucks was already closing some urban stores but i think gastown right now is a very challenging place to be for uh for a, a you know, a food business or a retailer. And, and that's just a cycle, as you pointed out, though, right? I used to work at a, at a shop in Gastown back in my high school years there. And um, that was not a place where you really went after hours. Uh, and then when Starbucks moved into the neighborhood, it felt like everything changed and it was going to be a whole new era. And now I feel like it's it's just going through that cycle again. Yeah, I, I and I don't know. I I think it's a very complex situation. And the reason I say it's unique is we also have a unique place in Canada, which is the downtown east side, um, with, with an equal uh, footing of neighborhood considerations to those that were coming in to gentrify. So we have this kind of two worlds that were, I would say, ten years ago, seemed to be coexisting fairly well during the pandemic it seemed like a very small minority of either desperate and or lawless individuals started to dominate that area with uh, vandalism, uh, aggressive behavior. You know, people were being, uh, there there's more of a, a threatening situation compared to say 2018, 2019. Right. And we started to see, uh, and by the way, it's a real, real challenge, not just for shoppers. You think about people getting staff to go down there, as you said, and dealing with broken windows and things like that on a regular basis. Uh, I know a lot of the, um, the more independent owners that are down there have started to move off into other areas. They just don't need the headache. But coincidentally, if you have offshore landlords who don't really understand the situation, a lot of them were starting to really jack up the, the rents, thinking, hey, we've got a new Yale town on our hands. And so it's a bit of a perfect storm down there right now until it gets cleaned up. Do you think retailers are in a process of kind of reevaluating and there's some change happening there? Because I've even noticed that in, in Pacific Center Mall downstairs where longtime retailers are just suddenly gone. Yeah, no, th- that is the universal uh, part. The universal truth is there there's a tremendous uh, chaos kind of rippling through physical retail. But that but also means summer opening um, uh, as an example uh, we saw probably way too much, many cannabis stores open up in the last three years, right? So there, there's always someone there saying, I'll, I'll sign your lease. But a lot of the brands that we've known about, they're, um, they're rationalizing. They, they figure out that with online, they don't need as many stores. But it's pretty conclusive right now that a brand having some stores gives it far more weight in the marketplace than having no stores. So we see a lot of the online brands starting to open up their own stores, but the number of them is not as necessary as it was in the past. So almost every retailer is looking at their portfolio and saying, where are the underperforming stores? Let's get out of those. Right. So it's Um, it's never dull, is it, David? (laughs) Yeah. And the really big malls, the big destinations still have a, you know, like right now the hot area is West 4th in Vancouver. So if you go down there, you know, around Arbutus or you, that area, um, you see Warby Parker, uh, you know, there's an, uh, there's just a number of brands that are going, Arcterix, et cetera, Lulu's down there. 
Um, so there's a lineup. People are waiting there for a lease to open up, right? So it just depends what neighborhood. Right. All right. More upheaval as always. David, thanks so much for your time. You're more than welcome. Appreciate that. That's David Ian Gray, marketing expert for Dig360, talking about retail changes. You know, Starbucks going through changes, leaving a, a long time Gastown location. But also, I don't know if you've noticed, but I, you know, even just walking into a mall, I go, well, that, where did that store go? It was here forever and now it's gone. And there is, I feel like, a lot of that happening out there. On a way in, simi at cknw.com.